Greetings. Welcome to Haver Bros, a podcast for historic cross-centered Christians. We seek to provide ancient answers to a culture that's forgotten the questions. Thank you for listening this week. If you like what you're hearing or enjoy the show, please share it with a friend and say positive things about us on Twitter and Facebook. This is the biggest way that podcasts grow and specifically word of mouth. Um, Do share it with a friend. Share it with your mother. If you haven't yet given us a five-star review, pause your recording and give us a five-star rating and review. Follow us on Twitter at at clergylay and join our Facebook discussion group. I'm Kirk Haberman, a church musician, and this is my brother Chris, a priest. And Chris, we have a high honor today. We have a special guest. Indeed we do. Uh, We are joined today by Philip Thompson. Philip Thompson is professor of systematic theology and Christian heritage at Sioux Falls Seminary, which means he was my professor. Uh, He has a bachelor's from Mars Hill College. He received his master's in divinity from Union Theological Seminary and his PhD from Emory University. He hails from the Tar Hill State. For those who uh, are unfamiliar with what that means, that means he's from North Carolina. (laughs) Um, He served as a pastor um, both before and after he received his PhD and uh, moved to South Dakota in, was it 2001? um, And has has served um, at uh, Sioux Falls Seminary um, since then. Uh, One thing I want to say about Philip Thompson, um, um, not just the scholar, but the man, and, and not that we can separate any of these things from each other, is... We talked last week in our final segment, uh, the uh, culture segment, about masculinity, about manliness, and um, talked about like Christ-like manliness. And uh, so I want to say uh, one of the things that I was trying to grasp at in that segment was um, that gentlemanliness is is such a distinctive, like what we consider to be gentlemanly, um, this Christ-like kind of self uh, selflessness, um, just loving kindness and care. Um, these are things that I see exemplified in Philip Thompson. Mm. Um, I see him uh, as the most gentle and loving and kind um, fatherly teacher. Um, the way that he cares and loves his students is amazing. And I've seen it also on the other side as he um, he welcomed a cousin of his uh, to, to Sioux Falls as a student. And I joined um, her mentor team um, and so kind of rather than being a student and seeing Dr. Thompson as a teacher, um, to, to be in a role alongside Philip as he nurtures a student, um, it's an amazing portrait of, of a guy who, who is just truly Christ-like. And I love that most about uh, Philip Thompson. Um, but I also love that he is a Baptist. Uh, we had a conversation earlier this week where Philip talked about um, 
like at his Baptist, uh, was it undergraduate institution? Having these, was it uh, monks like sleeping on your floor as they traveled through? Because he had uh, yeah, spent was, so much time at a, yeah. at a, at a, no, they, uh, they go all, ahead. Yeah, tell us, that, tell the story. I was going to say, no, that was, that was when I was, uh, I, I started in, in undergrad. Um, I, I started my seminary at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. And, and the school went through some real institutional disruption while I was there. So I transferred, and I should say I transferred to Union in Virginia, not the one in New York. So yes, uh, the, uh, <laughs> a small but important difference. <laughs> it, it is, a, it is a, an important difference. So um, uh, anyway, um, at Mars Hill, Mars Hill is a, a really diverse community. Uh, it's a Baptist college in North Carolina, but really, really diverse. And so uh, there was a professor of sociology who had been in the formation for Catholic priesthood. Uh, he didn't complete that. He he uh, he, he married and, and had a family and taught sociology. But he would take a group of us every every year uh, for an extended monastic retreat at a Monastery of the Holy Spirit in Conyers, Georgia. Um, anyway, one time I, I went and, there. And I, I, do, I do want to just, uh, for, for our listeners who don't understand um a baptist from the south hanging out with catholics in this way like this is just this is a bit mind-blowing right it's, it is it's not typical <laughs> it's not typical so but but uh it's sort of like wendell berry says in the hidden wound uh, to gloss that you know it's like my life is has has been uh shaped by by catholic influences uh so often you know through throughout the years um Anyway, but I did have uh, a, a priest I met uh, at, at the monastery uh, stay with me in my dorm um, when I was at Southeastern. And um, um, at my, my ordination, um, it included uh, a Catholic priest and deacon. Uh, the deacon spoke, uh, the, the, I, I don't know, I may be the only or one of the very few Baptists who's been ordained with the imposition of hands uh, from someone who actually was ordained within you know apostolic succession <laughs> so anyway uh and and then the the deacon praised uh, the the papacy of pope john the 23rd from the pulpit of the baptist church where i was being uh, ordained which uh you know that that you know talk about you know signs signs of uh, mm. of of the times changing <laughs> as we <laughs> we will in our, our gospel uh it was yeah, it was it was pretty uh, pretty earth shaking. So and, and perhaps uh, yeah. this is a story for another time. I, yeah. uh, but uh, in one of these times, you visited uh, the monastery, um, Philip, along with were other Baptists there. We were a diverse group. Uh, I know we had mo we were mostly Baptists. We had at least one or two Methodists, and and one guy his uh, his dad was an Episcopal priest. Okay. Um, and well, what we're he, doing he is had, we're, we're establishing your, your ecumenical bona fides, is what we're yes, doing right, right now. But yeah. he was, Philip, um, along with other Protestants, were, were responsible for the removal of an altar from, from a monastery. Yes. <laughs> like, literally, yeah. they, they, they removed it. Yep. With, with not just permission, but they were asked to. But, yeah, we were asked to do know, that. Yeah. <laughs> we, we, uh, we, yeah, we, we lived the monastic day, which included physical labor, and, and part of our labor was removing... Uh, it was it was a uh, the, the monastery church was built prior to Vatican II, so there was an altar where the community uh, received, and then there was a, a second altar on the uh, 
on the other side oh. of the rood screen oh. that separated the the community from you the participated in the decoration of e or the desecration of east end <laughs> altars <laughs> well no i it was uh it was it, was, it had been deconsecrated so um I, it I know, was I yeah certainly so no i am uh, i am uh, i am i am openly ad orientum so only celebrate to the east end so all these vatican II churches with the east end altars ripped out so they can have just some hippie table in the middle <laughs> well that's Philip, funny, um I, we've, we've had a bit of an introduction to you with many interruptions from me um but uh i, I wonder if you'd spend a few minutes uh introducing yourself and uh to our listeners yeah well well you've you've hit on on so much of the um of the important uh, uh, background. I, I'm a North Carolinian. Uh, my dad's a Baptist minister. Uh, I, one interesting thing about growing up where I did, I grew up in uh, Catawba County, North Carolina, which is, it is the farthest west of the Piedmont counties. The next county over, you get into the mountains. Um, and it's an, it's an area that was heavily settled by uh, Lutherans. And so it's really odd to grow up Baptist in the South, but think that the world is pretty much Lutheran. Um, <laughs> and, and that's how I grew up. I thought Baptists were a minority, which unlike, uh, I think, I can't remember if it was Martin Marty or Mark Noel once quipped, you know, in the South, they are more Baptist than people. And uh, so, um, but I didn't grow up thinking that. And um, so that was good. It, it, it it, uh, I never had that kind of, of sense of a, of a Baptist triumphalism uh, when I was growing up, uh, which, which is, you find uh, throughout a lot of Baptist life. Um, so uh, Mars Hill, um, really good ecumenical uh, Where is Mars Hill? It is 20 miles north of Asheville in the town okay. of Mars Hill, North Carolina. It, um, it's actually, you know, Mars Hill's a cool name now within evangelicalism mm -hmm. to talk about the interface of faith and culture, but this school has been Mars Hill College since 1862. Well, it's now a university, has changed recently, but uh, it's been Mars Hill since 1862. <laughs> Before that, it had a horrible name. Uh, there's a river in Western North Carolina called the French Broad, which, so it was the French Broad Baptist Institute, which is just... <laughs> It's hard That's to recruit students to that. <laughs> so, and uh, and uh, I'm, I'm going to just establish my bona fides as, as Haber interrupter um, yes. to say um, Mars Hill, um, of course, uh, refers to um, the Areopagus yes. in Acts 17, 17. Where, where Paul um, is invited to speak to the men of Athens. I perceive yep. that you are very religious. And, and so it, it's it, like you said, the intersection, it's seen as the intersection between um, just kind of a, what intellectual culture um, yeah. and, and like, ideas and and in the integration of of faith and culture right. so dr thompson when christopher was at uh, was at sioux falls seminary uh he uh began to speak to me about this this one professor who was um maybe a maybe a crypto anglican or a closet <laughs> anglican uh and uh so i um he loved your classes he loved how you were kind of tuned into the historic church year the collect for the week um uh, feast days um, and uh, uh, would you mind speaking for a moment about how you um, became sort of a, a Philo Anglican? Uh, well, I, I, th I think maybe it was just a, a you know finally finding that uh, that expression of the faith where I was already dispositionally there even before I knew it existed. Mm. Um, I've always been drawn uh, to order. Um, I I think you know, I. I 
I understand that we are liturgical beings, and I think I understood that even before I had the conceptuality to to articulate it. Um, and and I just uh, you know I I, I love uh, the beauty of language, and you certainly find that within the Anglican tradition. Um, I, I think that uh, there is is little that is more beautiful than the, the Psalms in the Anglican chant style, mm. um, and and it, this this may be a, a this is going to be a moment of great vulnerability <laughs> um, uh, and and confession, but when I am in Oxford um, and I, I've been there a few times. One of the very oldest Baptist churches in the world is there. It's New Road Baptist Church, which was established 1654, 1656, somewhere around there. And and I have never actually attended services there because I'm always <laughs> at Christ Church when I have an opportunity. Because I just, you know, there's just something about uh, being there uh, and at a, the shrine of St. Frideswide and um, it, it's it. I just am, am uh, uh, drawn to to that. Um, you know, I I think that uh, um, you know, words are. A, this is this is something that Erasmus said. Or, words are the bridge between history and mystery. They are mm. they are mediatorial, as we confess in the Christian faith. Uh, the the word is that which which you know, discloses God to us. And all all words share in that. Uh, when we talk about you know, God as truth, uh, the the truth of words, uh, they they share in in that uh, in that truth of God. Um, but this, I, I'm going off in, in more. No, than you're not going off at all. <laughs> I am I'm nodding along uh, vigorously. Yeah. Um, I, a, amen. Um, words. It, made me think um words both have generative power creative power and i think that's an echo of the word speaking all things right. into being right um but they also have power to powers to stir um and i think that's what you're touching upon as well um yeah. at the very end we're going to pray um uh, when we wrap up we're going to pray the collect for advent one which is also um then the collect to be prayed every at every daily office yeah. throughout advent and that um, because um, that is prayed daily for 24 days, that is such a, when we pray that, and it will never until my dying day, um, that is so stirring to me. And then uh, words are also, I think, formational. They shape you. And Christopher, this is a, a hobby horse that you beat a lot, is yeah. um, how we are shaped by the liturgies um, that we have. So we, so we think we're in control of our daily lives, but in fact, our practices um, form and shape us as well. And, and a lot of our practices are the words that we repeat <laughs> and the yeah. sequences of words that we repeat. And that's why as liturgical Christians, we, we believe that like a, an, an ordered memorized confession is important, even when we're going through it, quote, wrote, unquote, um, it's shaping and forming our souls. But yeah, so I agree with everything that you're saying, Dr. Thompson, absolutely. Words in, have in, enormous power. In, in theology, um, we talk about uh, that, you know, how we're formed in Christian identity and, and and our identity is born to us through through words, rituals, and, and physical things, and and you know there you have the elements of of, of the liturgy. Uh, it it is the it is you know that wonderful confluence of, of word, ritual, and and object. 
and and so um, you know that also I, I think really even uh, touches on on some of, of the passage for uh, the gospel lesson for for this coming Sunday. Yeah. Before well, we Thompson, turn there, before that? we turn there oh, uh, to oh, the gospel, okay. um, Dr. Thompson, uh, Kirk has an ambition to oh, no. um, later in life. Um, be a regular, even if regular is every five years, be a regular visitor to Pusey House. I'm curious um, of, uh, I don't know if we've ever talked about, um, uh, you and I, if, if we've talked about this, but um, do you have any, any experiences with Pusey House? That, yeah. uh, I'd imagine you yeah. visit it when you go, and would you like to share yeah. anything about that? Well, Pusey House is, is uh, right next door to the Baptist College in Oxford, <laughs> okay. uh, which is Regent's Park. Uh, right across from, you know, Regent's Park is on Pusey Street. And, um, and so, the last time I was in Oxford uh, for a conference at Regents, uh, the Totus Christus conference was going on at Pusey House, and I was I got to Oxford a little bit early. Uh, I went over to do some uh, some work with a friend of mine in Bath on a book in Baptist sacramental theology, and he and his wife left on holiday, um, and so I went on up to Oxford at that point. But it was a about a day before the conference started, or the our conference, so you know, I made sure it was okay if I just sat in at the back because I was not a registrant at, uh, at, the, at the conference at Pusey House, and they were very gracious. Um, and so I, I attended uh, um, even uh, even song there uh, once, and the next day they actually had uh, Orthodox. Uh, evening prayer, mm. uh, and the reason was because Totus Christus being such a uh, a richly diverse uh, event, um, that you know, there were a number of Orthodox participants as well. But uh, uh, I normally don't, you know, and I normally don't get starstruck, uh, and and <laughs> I, you know. Um, but I was sitting uh, in, in Pusey House Chapel waiting for evening prayer. I, can't, I think it was the evening prayer. I can't remember if it was, if, which, which one of these two it was. And, and in fairly quick succession, uh, N.T. Wright, Rowan Williams, uh, Louis Ayers, uh, Callistos Ware, and Oliver O'Donovan all walked into the, <laughs> into the chapel. I just thought, Oh my word! <laughs> what company I'm sitting in the midst of? I was actually sitting with, uh, and had a really good conversation afterwards with some younger Anglican priests, um, and and it was it was really encouraging. You know, it, a lot of times, and 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 you know, it's not without uh, foundation. We we talk about the the you know the deadness of of many parishes in Europe. Um, but uh, Oxfordshire actually has um, has um, a, a rate of, of church going that that's similar to that in the U.S. Hmm. Uh, it's it's a it's a pretty vibrant um, religious uh, environment. Uh, there's always a, a good you know good uh, robust uh, gathering at St All Dates for their three services. I remember someone said. That uh, St Aldate's, which is the center for for evangelical Anglican life in, in Oxford, um, they have three liturgies on a Sunday morning, and each one will have five to six hundred in attendance. Um, so that's 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 wonderful. And the th the thing that really surprised me um, 
to take a step away from Canterbury toward Rome here, uh, right down from Pusey House is Blackfriars, which is the, the Dominican house in Oxford. And so one morning I went for, for morning prayer with the, the Dominicans and in the narthex of their, of their uh, college church, you know, here you see the, the stickers all over, you know, from devout Catholics, pray for vocations, pray for vocations. There's a shortage of priests. Religious communities can't necessarily sustain because of the lack of vocations. And there was a, there was a, a, a pamphlet there. And in, on the, the, in big letters at the top, it said, many vocations, but not enough funds to train them. And mm. so the Dominicans are receiving so many vocations. They're having, mm. they were having this huge fundraising drive. They were trying, I think it was a million pounds. They were trying to, to uh, raise, wow. to train all the, the young, young men who were coming with vocations to Dominican life. And if, if, if there were any in the monastic choir that morning uh, who were older than I was, it was at most one or two, mm. um, and and the vast majority were, you know, more like your ages, maybe even a little younger. It was it was really, really uh, wonderful to see. Oh, that's so that's encouraging to hear. Yeah, and uh, as Christopher said, I I I aspire um, to become a regular regular at Oxford, as the, my nest begins to empty. Not that yeah. I'm wishing that in the near future. Well, Gentlemen, we do need to move on to the yeah. gospel, yes. but I want to share one more thing that, that Philip, um, just a, a story that he told, just a fun anecdote of, of being at Oxford, since we're talking Oxford, um, was how, um, I don't know what day it was, what time of day, but you were walking down a street, <clears throat> must have been a Sunday, um, and uh, you in, intended, I believe, to, to go to, um, yeah. to, was it Christchurch? Christchurch, yes. But, but you happened to walk by, uh, uh, people think tend to think of Anglicans as, as incredibly yeah. uniform. But in fact, right. there are many expressions of Anglicanism. And you walked right by one yeah. of the vibrant evangelical yeah. Anglican churches where yeah. like music stumping from inside and there's kind of people streaming outside and people like, um, like they're such a vibrant community. They're literally standing outside inviting people in. Yeah. And was, they that, invite... was that St. Aldates? It was St. Aldates. Yeah, it was <laughs> the first time I ever went to Oxford. And a, a good friend of mine and I, we were we were standing in line because you know since Christchurch is an active college, um, they they very carefully regulate the people coming you know going in for morning prayer and then coming out and then going in for the Eucharistic liturgy on Sunday, and so my friend and I were waiting to be let in with those for the for the Eucharistic liturgy, and while we were while we were standing out there, I heard music that we would. <laughs> often have in our uh, seminary chapel here and it was contemporary christian music and i remember thinking i really don't think that's coming out of the cathedral and I, <laughs> but i couldn't really figure out where it was and then i realized there was a, a church catacorner to uh to the entrance there to christ church so i it was going it was still a few minutes so i went over and and peeked in and uh, it was in all dates and there were you know, there were people of of every age and every ethnicity, holding their hands up, praising God. And I remember thinking, oh, this this is what the kingdom of God is going mm. to look like, mm. or it does look like. Mm -hmm. And um, and and someone uh, invited me in, uh, an usher, and I and I told him that I had a friend. And he, and he 
recognized my American accent. He said, he said, is this your first time in England? I said, yes. He said, well, you really do need to go over there and do the, the Anglican thing, <laughs> but you're always welcome here. But not that they weren't Anglican. But, um, That's funny. Anyway, but it's like, yeah, you so, should go to Christchurch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I went over to Christchurch, you know, and it was a very diverse and large congregation there as well, which was, I thought, telling. Uh, but then when the, the choir at Christ Church started saying, I thought, yeah, this is probably more of what the kingdom of God's going to sound like. Amen. So since we, we've decided we're just going to full-blown, uh, just, just go all fanboy on Oxford for a moment, I have to ask you, did you ever uh, swing by St. Mary's? St. Mary the Virgin where Newman Yeah, preached. I'm thinking of Newman's church. Yeah, yes. exactly. Yeah, I did. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful church. And so yeah. I've checked, Christopher, we walked past it uh, okay. in 98, and I just did, I didn't know. I didn't, I didn't know that I yeah. could, I mean, I wouldn't have known who John Henry Newman was as yeah. an 18-year-old. Yeah. But yeah. now, uh, I'll, someday I'll make the pilgrimage. I'll, I'll walk past the pulpit and look up at it. Yeah. I, yeah. Um, I love his sermons, Dr. Thompson, and so, um, yeah. so it'll, be, it'll be neat to visually look at the pulpit and, and think of, of the sermons that I've read, so. It, it is, it is a neat experience. Yeah. Christopher, we need to go to the gospel, don't we? Let's do it. Today's gospel comes from the book of Mark, chapter 13, verses 24 through 37. But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth, to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. Philip, would you, would you start us off here? With oh. the... uh, yeah, just to, just to walk through a, a few things. Um, and in, in anything that 
would like to to discuss further. Um, you know, it, Mark thirteen, you know, is called the Little Apocalypse, and so this is this is a passage in a, a genre that we find in Scripture called apocalyptic. Um, in the in the Old Testament, you know, we see it primarily in Daniel. There's there's debate about whether apocalyptic arose out of, of prophetic or wisdom literature. Uh, I, I can see how. Um, I, I think wisdom literature is actually a really good, uh, really good um, um, possibility for for that for that origin because Daniel in the in the Jewish canon uh, is not considered it's not part of the prophetic corpus but it's part of the writings uh, in the Tanakh. So uh, and that's the the canon that uh, as Jews uh, as the Jewish faith uh, holds it. But the uh, the apocalyptic genre uses a lot of, of, of symbolism to speak about uh, what will happen at the, at the ends of the ages. And even that, I'm, I'm trying to, uh, to, to say what, what is it, what's necessary and it also uh, not go too far uh, down a, a, a rabbit trail. But uh, I, I am convinced by those who, who say that you, we really need to understand an apocalyptic under, uh, apocalyptic worldview in order to understand the New Testament, that there is this sense that um, uh, apocalyptic, uh, unlike, you know, the prophetic literature often will say, you know, will call people back to Torah observance. Um, apocalyptic arose during a time in which Torah observance uh, was actually uh, problematic. The more faithful the people would be, the more they would suffer. And so, how do we make sense of this? And 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 the the understanding was that uh, we'll we'll never be faithful enough to to rectify everything. That it's going to take God's intervention to to ring down the curtain on this this fallen age to bring in. Um, what we call the kingdom of God, and, and this is this is where the Old Testament um, uh, phrase, "the day of the Lord," uh, comes in. The day of the Lord is this is this time of, of decisive intervention. And but but apocalyptic also, um, it has a kind of uh, of, of subversive quality uh, because it is it uses highly symbolic language. To speak words of comfort uh, to a to a suffering community, um, you know, there's there's actually some debate as to whether uh, Mark 13 really is truly apocalyptic or not. A lot of apocalyptic literature, both in Scripture and there's also non-canonical apocalyptic literature, uh, it's often that the one who is sharing the revelation has received it from a kind of angelic messenger. Something we see this in Revelation, for instance. Uh, you know, John is not saying this of his own authority, but he's received this from from uh, from angels, essentially uh, in in heaven. You know, uh, I can't remember. I'd have to. Look. I don't think. I don't think the Lamb actually ever speaks to John. It's always angels interpreting what's going on. Uh, but we don't have that here. Jesus is using this. Uh, Jesus is the messenger himself here. Um, but one of the features and and. This is really where I was uh, heading with this. 
in apocalyptic literature, you, you have a kind of uh, mirroring of, of uh, social uh, disruption and dislocation and, and suffering with a kind of, of cosmic disturbance. Uh, and what that does is that it puts in a kind of cosmic perspective the the struggles of the of the faithful community, and so that's why it the the lection for today starts with, um, but after those days, you know, at, after that suffering, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, um, etc. But it's before that we're, we're, we hear. Uh, in Mark 13 about the suffering that's going to, to befall the community and is befalling the community. So, you know, and that's how we need to read. We need to, we need to read that as a kind of symbolic expression of significance, not a kind of literalism of this, you know, like a perpetual eclipse and the moon, you know, somehow stops reflecting the light of the sun and the stars literally fall out of out of heaven. It's like, I remember hearing, I, hearing N.T. Wright, not live, but in a I think in an interview or something, he, he was talking about a one of his colleagues uh, during his uh, career, or maybe even when he was in school himself, uh, would say, you know, this is not like uh, this is not like a weather forecast. You know, it's not <laughs> going to say the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven, and and other parts of the country and other parts will have uh, you know partly cloudy and showers. Right. So it's not it's not to be read that way. It's it's, it's to speak of the of the importance of what's going on with the community so that their suffering is not simply senseless it's part of this it's part of uh, of a, a very painful process through which through which god's victory will be will be made final and that's you know uh i think verse eight in in, in mark 13 jesus talks about these are but the beginnings of the birth pangs and so this this you know this this pain of of bringing forth a new reality, it is cosmic and it's certainly felt in the community. So um, that would be one thing I would note. Um, one of the things that that uh, vexes some, it really has vexed interpreters for a long time, is to say, you know, you you've got almost a, a tension between the little uh, from 28 to 31 and 32 and following uh, where Jesus says fairly assuredly, you know, when you see these things taking place, know that he's near. Um, I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place, uh, which sounds very certain of, you know, this, you know, you, you folks standing here are going to, and, and you know, you're, you're going to see this. And then um, the necessity of, uh, of for, to be watchful, uh, 32 of all, and about that day or hour, no one, neither the angels in heaven nor the sun, but only the Father knows. And so how can, how can both of those be the case that if, if Jesus doesn't know the time, then how can he say it's definitely going to happen? And, you know, there, there are some who just say, well, you know, Jesus, uh, Jesus didn't, you know, Jesus was wrong on the first one. I, I don't, I don't, I, I, always hesitate to say Jesus is wrong. <laughs> seems to be a, a good theological instinct. Seems to be a good theological instinct there. Um, but it, it dawned on me, even as you were reading it, Father Christopher, that um, 
you know, when you see these things taking place, it may be that this is not in a final sense because in, uh, interpreters also say it's wrong to think of Christ coming as, you know, once and then a second coming. But, you know, there is this, there is this sense in which Christ is, is always coming. Uh, Lo, I am with you always, you, even unto the end of the yeah, age. Yeah, and 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 if and if and certainly if you pray an epiclesis in uh, in mm -hmm. in the in the Eucharistic liturgy, you're you're also uh, uh, signaling that reality. Right. And so I, I epiclesis, of yeah. course. Sorry to interrupt. Uh, being, uh, <laughs> the prayer for the Holy Spirit. Call it asking yes. the Spirit to come down. Yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but but also you know the the presence of Christ in the sacraments. Mm -hmm. um, this is this shares in in the 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 one coming of Christ, which we might speak of its final manifestation here. But also, I, I think that apocalyptic literature is so often um, it, it's misread, uh, and, and we can talk some about that in, in with the theology. But it's not it, it's not like it was spoken long ago for people who may still be far in our future. Uh, I, I remember my, my dad preaching on this. I, I heard so many of my dad's sermons, it's hard to remember, hmm. you know, hard to remember many of them. But uh, I do remember him saying, you know, if, if, if the words had had no meaning for the original audience, they would never have been preserved. Um, you know, so, so people who want to read all of these contemporary events into it as the meaning you know, it, if, if it's deferred out 2,000 years, why write it down? You right. know, it's so, well, but, I have a clarifying but, question about yeah. that. Um, mm -hmm. and, and we should kind of maybe for the listener make clear what we're talking about. Um, yeah. a, a kind of a classic liberal Protestant argument is that this was written after 70 AD, right? And right. so it's just right. about the, the destruction of the temple, of the temple yeah. in Jerusalem. And, um, Christopher, uh, Father Paul, uh, uh, my priest, I feel like uh, did a really love tackling these texts um, in Mark and 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 elsewhere, and in uh, in Matthew has a similar passage um, where uh, where he pointed out that um, Christians, there's historical evidence that Christians um, left yeah. Jerusalem, understanding, oh yeah, this is what Jesus was talking about, and also furthermore believed that Jesus was coming back again. So the, so the first early church saw this as both and. Yeah, and right. Yeah, I was going to say, I think that's, that's right. This, this literature, it, it's, it's meant to, to uh, speak into every context. And so these things taking place, I think, you know, th this generation will not pass away till all these things have taken place. That doesn't necessarily mean in the final sense. Right. Uh, it, it, this will be your experience, but it's not going to be that you know there, there'll be nothing to experience after that. And I think that's that, that's a good way to to look at the the book of Revelation as well. It, it's to speak into the to to our context. And you're you're right, uh, Kirk. Um, there there's debate. It's interesting that um, uh, one place I've read um, the the author said that for a time it was uh scholars tended to to reject that the christian community had had gone to pella uh during the the time when this was um you know the, the 
just before the fall of Jerusalem in, in response to a vision. Uh, but but now that, that that seems to be coming back into some, you know, there, there are some arguments being made for it again. So um, anyway, I think that's, that's absolutely right. Uh, it, is, it is a both and, and I think we have to see it that way. So I had a, uh, an old friend who um, over the years when, when being separated by many miles and getting out of touch, he, he came to know Jesus. And it was kind of like this exciting thing um, to reconnect after being apart from so many years. But also he's like, you're a Christian, just, just hey, like I'm one too now. Like I know Jesus. Like, and, and this was like a, a joyous thing for him. But um, as, as we kind of discussed, um, we talk about this or that. And, and he sent me this YouTube video at one point. He said, what do you think about this? And it was um, this, uh, this guy who was probably using this as a proof text. Um, uh, he pulled up like this, like this view of the, the, the sky from Jerusalem and these stars and, and was, was saying, you know, because of these particular signs, like, you know, now is the time or like next year, or this was five years ago, whatever the, whatever the case may be. And, and he pointed to like, he said, like, we have like, Jesus points to the, to the tree, to the fig tree. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Lessons from the fig tree. I'm sure he was like, well, the reason we're given these things specifically is so that we can know, even as Jesus in the same passage is saying, nobody knows, <laughs> not even me. Um, and, and it seems that the, the weight of the passage is, is not to like discern the precise time, but, um, of his second coming, but to be awake, to be alert. Um, where, so where Kirk and I look at these passages and we say, be awake, be alert. What does that mean? And we ask that question, what does it mean to be awake and alert? And as we studied, um, the parables in Matthew, it seemed like, um, preparedness, especially for the virgins, um, uh, was in some sense, um, uh, moral, like we're not moralistic people, but like, right. but, um, you know, we never want to be like, okay, Christ is coming back. So get your ducks in a row. But I, like, I think that's there, probably what the wedding garment is too, in the parable yeah. of the wedding yeah. feast. Yeah. 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 Um, so, so, so we see this, this sense of like, Christ's going to return and like, don't put off till tomorrow what you can like. The, the reconciliation that you need to do the like the yeah. the, the, the the generosity the poor the justice that needs to happen don't put that off um so that's kind of how we see these things and yet people look at the bible and say well actually no like we're given all these things so that we can yeah. discern um the time of his second coming and preparedness means like yeah. looking at events and, and things like that I, I wonder if if, if uh, either you have anything any comments about that about people who who really want to figure out the thing that christ says i don't even know yeah well um what was the there was a fellow out in california who you know he was pretty sure that it was this was going to happen uh you know and he, he made a prediction a few years ago and then it didn't happen and so i cannot remember the man's name but then <laughs> he know? uh do you remember? Do you, you uh, remember what, wasn't you Father Paul really about? into this guy? Yes, yes. Really my guy? priest was really <laughs> loved it. And in fact, he put it on his Google calendar, okay. the apocalypse. Yeah. And then like oh, all yeah. his priest friends that he'd shared it yeah. with were like texting him like, why is the end of the world on my calendar? Yeah, <laughs> it, well, it, yeah, uh, yeah. And, then, and then it didn't happen. And so like, it's <laughs> and so then often, he was, wasn't he like, no, it actually did. It was just like, so he's small, like, I didn't you know? carry no, the two. No, that's interesting. Well, okay. You know, sociologically, you can, I mean, People have looked at these kinds of, 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 of apocalyptic predictions, 
and and there does tend to be uh, one of two uh, two things, um, and sometimes you see them both. It's either well we miscalculated, and so it's going to be this time, or uh, and and very often after there's a couple of failures, it's well it happened, but it was a spiritual rather than physical event, um, and so. Um, but anyway, this fella, he, he, he took another stab at it and, and it didn't happen again. And then he said, I guess I'm just not a very good prophet. I thought, you don't <laughs> normally hear that kind of honesty. And he, he actually died not long after. He was a fairly elderly man. But, um, but it's interesting. You see that, uh, well, the, the, uh, the Millerites back in the 1840s, uh, William Miller up in upstate New York, he had, I can't remember the dates. I don't know. I'm going to have to review them before I teach the second part of church history next semester. But um, he, he had a date calculated and it didn't happen. And so there was an, another date that he was pretty sure he, he had misread something in Daniel or, you know, and anyhow, but uh, sort of like he's like, he didn't carry the two. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, that date in, in his movement came to be known as the great disappointment because it didn't happen yet again. Um, but also, this when I when I tr went to Union, uh, Union's a Presbyterian seminary, and so I had to get a, a number of books um, since I was there were there were a few of us who were Baptists, but not we we weren't enough that they need that they really could stock Baptist books in the bookstore. So we had to go to the Baptist bookstore in Richmond uh, there to to get our some of our books for denominational studies. And I remember the the first fall I was there, there was a little pamphlet on a or little booklet on a display, and and it was uh, 88 reasons the rapture will occur in 1988. And uh, so I, when I went to get my books the next year, it was 89. It was the second edition. 89 <laughs> reasons the rapture will happen in 1989. And and I remember looking it up much much later, but they they stopped publishing after that. They went out of business. Okay. So, uh, you know, yeah. They didn't have to come up with it with another reason every year. 120 reasons why it's going to happen in 2020. You know, it's, uh, you know, and I don't want to make light of it because, you know, that's the problem is because there is such obvious incorrectness mm -hmm. in, in making these kinds of predictions, then it leads people too often to stop taking this literature seriously. And it's some of the most serious literature uh, I mean, not not to not to try to grade the seriousness of Scripture, but it is it's such a, it's so important for us to, uh, to 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 be mindful of these things and to and to read them read them well. Yeah. So as we try to read this well, um, the chapter ends uh, with with this coda, and yeah. what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Yeah. So let me ask you, how do we stay awake? Yeah, and that's interesting. I had not even thought of this until um, you know just just this moment. But you were talking about the the parable of is it's historically called the wise and foolish virgins, the parable of the bridesmaids. Now, um, from last week, and uh, we, yeah, it was last week, wasn't mm -hmm. it? For, uh, for Christ, or was it two two, two, weeks, two weeks, weeks ago? Two weeks ago, weeks ago. yeah. I think it was longer ago than no, last. No, I think it's three weeks actually. Sorry. Three, okay, yeah, I knew it was not last week. So we did. It, it has lingered. It has yeah. lingered. Yeah, so last long last in our week hearts. was last week was of course the Matthew twenty five. <laughs> yep. Sheep and goats, and then before that was talents, and then before right. that I think was was the yeah. You're right. You're absolutely right. But but you know, it, uh, one commentator uh, that I read on that, I actually 
preach that Sunday, so I had to to do more more study on on that one. Um, but um, but but one commentator pointed out, you know, that all of them fell asleep. Uh, it was just that some were ready for the for the coming of the bridegroom and some were not. And so the question is, how are you ready? But here the question is, how do you stay awake? Mm -hmm. Because you know you do have that kind of recurring theme through from scripture. You know, you are children of you are not children of the night. You're children of the day. You know, yes. and 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 you know, drunkards get drunk times. at night, yeah. right? And and um, and of course, you know, there, there is that. Uh, you know, you actually, you have both images in in New Test in the New Testament. You know, Paul citing that uh, very possibly a baptismal hymn in Ephesians: "Sleep or awake and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you," which um, implies that kind of you have to wake up and and so you have both waking up and staying awake it's it's really interesting um uh you know it, 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 be sober be vigilant you know in in first peter um and and so there you know there there's both of these things that uh, uh so uh but now how how do we how do we stay awake and and i it i think it's that it's that watchfulness it's, it's that alertness because you know that we are to we are to Pay attention to the, as Vatican II and, and the aftermath of that saying, talking about being attentive to the signs of the times, uh, to to read uh, our time in light of the the wisdom of Scripture, and uh, and and the Christian revelation. Um, that I think that's what keeping awake uh, refers to. Um, and so anyway, I'll just I'll, I'll just say. I I have to think that. Um, Plato's Republic has to be lurking in the background here. So the form of the good, uh, so the allegory of the cave, um, most people spend their, uh, their lives in the cave watching the flickering shadows on the wall, assuming that's real. Mm -hmm. um, and and, and Plato, Plato says, no, 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 you need to step out of the cave and mm -hmm. stare up in the sky and see the form of the good, see the truths, see truth, beauty, justice, see reality as mm -hmm. it really is not kind of um, as echoed through your fleshy desires cast upon the cave wall. And um, I actually think we get that metaphor, it, it kind of um, early Christian literature gets that metaphor from, from I think Greek philosophy, um, the idea of stepping into the light. I mean, you certainly mm -hmm. see that in Johannine literature in John one, um, it's, it, it blares forth there as well. Yeah. Um, and so I think, I think wakefulness, watchfulness, um, I, I, I think we kind of get it from that as well. Um, mm -hmm. We are, we are not going through our days, watching the flickerings on the wall, like um, satisfying our desires, um, but rather we know that there's a greater truth. We know that, um, that uh, someday, <laughs> I mean, watch for the times, right? We know that someday um, the Messiah will be coming. And so part of being awake is, is knowing that <laughs> and treasuring that in our hearts and yearning for it. Um, and staring up at the sky and saying, when, Lord, and having that color our prayers, having that color our, 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 our time together as, as believers, um, coloring our, uh, our, our reading of the Bible, our reading of the Psalms. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, I started to get excited and in doing so trailed off. But I, but so I, I do think that, um, that in some way Plato was lurking behind there mm -hmm. and, uh, and I think um, wakefulness and watchfulness has to do with that, that as well. Yeah, and I think, this, Kirk, this brings us full circle to um, 
Philip opening our discussion, talking about God being a God of truth and, yeah. and just, just, um, you know, uh, divine wisdom and, and, and all these things that like, um, as you talk about the allegory of the cave, um, watchfulness is, is kind of this uh, alertness to truth and, and, yeah. and coming awake to that. And I think that's, that's a great um, thing for us to, to consider right now um, of like God's truth has been revealed to us in the words of scripture. Um, and as we try to uh, respond to this text by uh, discerning what it means to stay awake, um, to um, be Bible people, to discern well, like what the Bible has to say mm -hmm. and to be uh, certainly alert in that way. And, and that is our season. I mean, we have a season here of being, uh, alert and being no. do i sense a transition <laughs> yeah i'm working on one yeah. <laughs> that was that was smooth i i, I was kirk i was <laughs> uh but you skidded that to a halt so uh gentlemen shall we talk advent For our theology segment, as we approach the first Sunday of Advent, we are appropriately going to discuss Advent. Um, Advent is something that I have come to love so deeply, to look forward to so deeply, and to use that awful contemporary phrase, lean into. <laughs> um, and I've, I, I, I would like you to consider this Advent um, having a, uh, an Advent that is in some ways uh, disambiguated from and differentiated from Christmas. And we'd like to talk a little bit about what it is, why it's not a pre-Christmas or an extended Christmas, and how you can do that. And we'd like to talk about that as well in the context of uh, some of the prophetic titles for the Messiah that exist in the prophecy of Isaiah that are called, uh, here's, a, here's a churchy phrase, and we'll explain it in a moment, but the O antiphons. And you know what they are, even if you don't think you know what they are, if you've ever sung that great Advent carol, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. But the season of Advent. Um, the season of Advent is a very curious season. It exists as, for Christians sort of out of time. Um, the first Sunday of Advent marks the beginning of our church year. So Happy New Year, um, believers, uh, if you're listening to this after the first Sunday of Advent. Uh, and we anticipate, we look to the skies for our Lord's second coming, well, simultaneously looking back and marveling at and sort of anticipating his first coming or the commemoration of his first coming on December 25th, commonly called Christmas. And so it's this simultaneously looking forward, looking back. It's across time and space. It's cosmic in that sense. It's cosmic in that it talks about cosmic events. <laughs> we read these great apocalyptic texts that talk about the skies bleeding and hills falling upon people and um, preparing a way for the Lord. And so it's cosmic in that way as well. And you have these big epochal texts that speak in, in, in this, this 
stirring metaphorical language. Um, the season of Advent, unfortunately, however, has disappeared entirely from Western secular life. There is no season of, season of anticipating that starts on December 1st, only satisfaction. The quote, holiday season has arrived. Um, and I love the Andy Williams song, it's the most wonderful time. And I listen to Bing Crosby and I, I get all the warm feels as well and it's great. Um, however, as Christians, we the church, we live in two worlds that are, that I, I really want you to try to hold in tension this Advent. Uh, on the one hand, the secular world of feasting, um, which is already beginning, right? <laughs> We're recording this on Black Friday, the Friday after Thanksgiving, and many people are putting up their Christmas decorations uh, already, and that's fine. I'm not telling you not to. Um, I am the Advent police, so I, but I won't, I won't turn you in. <laughs> the secular world is already uh, feasting, um, and yet um, the sacred world, um, those of us in the church, we begin a 24-day season of prayerful waiting and anticipation and anticipation. And so um, we'd like to talk a little bit about that in the context of some of these great prophecies um, that we're gonna be reading over the next several weeks um, called the, the O Antiphons. And you know these if you've ever sung that carol, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And these, um, these are Old Testament prophetic verses. Um, we, uh, we, and we can go over some of these in, in just a moment. Um, but if you've ever read through Isaiah, you'll notice that um, the Messiah is given a, a bunch of different uh, rich prophetic names, uh, a wisdom from on high, um, the Lord of Israel, Adonai, the root of Jesse. Um, and uh, and I, I don't want to talk about this too much. I want to hand this over to Dr. Thompson to kind of talk through this. Um, but these O antiphons, they begin um, eight days before Christmas. Um, and uh, you know what? I will stop. Uh, Dr. Thompson, um, it's a delight to have Kirk, you on Kirk. here. Yes. Kirk, I'm sorry to interrupt. Paper interrupter. Um, I, I believe you were going to define antiphon. Yes. You know, that's my thing. Let, yeah. me, let me define. What is, an an what is an antiphon? So okay. these are the O antiphons, but what's an antiphon? Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. Um, an antiphon is a verse that's sung before or after a canticle. And a canticle is just a passage of scripture that's sung. Um, uh, so for us as Anglicans in evening prayer, we sing the Magnificat, my soul doth magnify the Lord and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. And uh, the song of Simeon, the Lord now let thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. Um, that's my that's my dog Iris. She's very inspired when she hears the canticles. She loves them. Yeah. Um, and uh, it, as Christmas approaches, this was traditionally the uh, these were there was a new antiphon that would be sung before the canticle, and oftentimes these canticles, if if you're regularly in the regular practice of saying morning or evening prayer, um, the canticles um, sometimes you can be a bit on autopilot, and that's okay. That's just the human experience, right? Um, any child that said the Pledge of Allegiance for 12 years knows that, right? You get on autopilot. It doesn't mean you believe it any less. Uh, however, the antiphon is a lovely way of framing and um, maybe casting a different light upon the canticle that you're about to say or sing. Um, and so um, in the eighth day before Christmas, um, the O antiphon is O Sapientia, 
um, which is a wisdom from on high. Um, and so then as you're, uh, as you're singing or praying uh, that O Antiphon, um, one of the things that you can be doing is uh, you can be thinking about, uh, for example, Isaiah um, 11, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel. He shall not judge according to the sight of eyes, nor reprove according to the hearing of the ears. And we, the church reads that as a uh, prophetic text about the coming of the Messiah. So we believe um, that Jesus Christ embodies holy wisdom in a special way. And then because you've uh, prayed that antiphon before the Magnificat, um, that can kind of color your prayer and your worship as, you, uh, as you're going through morning or evening prayer. How's that, Christopher? Is that, is that explaining it as you had hoped? Christopher is giving me the thumbs up. So the antiphons were also used as the Alleluia um, to introduce the daily gospel reading. Um, if you're in a very traditional um, church, I, I don't know outside of certain Roman Catholic parishes how much that's done. Um, but the wonderful thing, thank you, Christopher, for stopping me. And, and I'll pass the baton to Dr. Thompson. The wonderful thing about these O antiphons, and there's debate over whether this was intentional or whether it's just serendipitous, or whether it's happy coincidence. But read backwards in Latin, they form the acrostic arrow cross, which means tomorrow I will be or I come. Um, and with the medieval, the eighth antivon, um, vero eros, or truly tomorrow. So it's, it's a way of when you stack them up vertically, um, it's, it's like our Lord promising, I'm coming. Even so, Lord, quickly come. All right, Dr. Thompson. Well, thank you. Uh, I, I love the antiphons. Um, I remember the first time I was introduced to them, it, it was at the monastery down in Conyers. Um, you know, being Baptist, uh, and we, 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 the three of us were talking off uh, the recording uh, a little bit about how so many um, you know, low church, more evangelical traditions. If they observe any part of the church here outside of Easter and Christmas, it's Advent, and yet they don't do it well. And one one thing we didn't talk about was um, how, for 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 many, Advent is simply four extra weeks of Christmas ahead of time. You know, it's just you know, which is absolutely not what you're supposed to do. But really, that I, I hate to say that's that's the way it was. It was done when my dad introduced it at, at uh, the church where he was pastor and so i uh, i was on a later retreat by myself I, it was i think it was by myself it was either by myself or with a couple of friends i can't remember um uh, to the monastery down in conyers and we were there at the beginning of advent and i no not at the beginning we were there during advent and uh the we were there on uh, the day that the antiphons began. And th this is a Trappist monastery, so very spare in, in you know, the, the Trappists are a very strict order. And, and so there's not a lot of ornament. There's no ornament really at all. It is a very, uh, very spare kind of, of, uh, of visual environment. And when I walked into the Abbey Church on that, that day, there were two huge, like 60 foot banners on either mm -hmm. side 
of, uh, of, of um, you know, the chancel area depicting the, the O antiphons uh, in, in a very, you know, almost, if you've seen sort of the stick figures in the, in the today's English version of the Bible, that's sort of like the, the kind of art that was in it, you know, just very, almost what you would expect, uh, uh, you know, elementary school kids to, to do with, you know, you know, try, you know, very sharp lines and, you know, not a lot of, not a lot of, uh, of, of, um, sophistication, but it, it was very fitting, I think, for, for Trappist life. And so that was my introduction, uh, actually hearing them prayed that way, which I just absolutely fell in love with them from the very beginning and immediately recognized, oh, these have come to us in that great hymn, uh, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And, and I, for some reason, I always loved O Come Thou Wisdom from on high and order all things mightily uh, to us the path of knowledge uh, show and cause us in her ways to go. Um, but so, okay, so they, they, they bring us to ponder these, these titles and images and symbols we have for Christ. Mm. One that I also love is, is uh, O Orion's, o, o Rising Star, or o, o Morning Star, yes. um, you know, which, is, which is so beautiful. Um, but anyway, um, Oh, and also to, just really quickly, um, while you were talking, it dawned on me, um, or it came to me, that uh, Robert Wilkin, in um, the spirit of early Christian thought, says that we, we often speak of Jesus as the Son of God, I mean, rightly. And we, we use the, the biblical phrase, Son of God and Word of God. But Wilkin points out that the early church, there was a third title for Christ that was right along with that, was which is wisdom of God. Mm. And, and so... Um, you know, the, uh, Christ as the wisdom of God, that is such, that is something we really need. And it really would be a wonderful, I think, kind of overriding reflection during Advent, um, you know, given the, the, the kind of, of meditative uh, task to which it calls us. But you think of, of T.S. Eliot's, um, you know, oh, where is the life we have lost in living? Where is the wisdom we have lost in knowledge? Where is the knowledge we've lost in information? Um, you know, that just really, that, that sums up our time so well as we talk about being in an in information-based economy. We're, we're, we we have, have punted on wisdom so often. And I think that's where, you know, we were talking about the, you know, the wisdom of, of keeping awake, being prepared, reading the signs of the times. It, it calls for wisdom. Um, so anyway, but to, what I was thinking, and, and I hope this isn't too far off, off base, um, as you were going through that, really bringing together the season, the, the gospel passage, as we were talking about it earlier, and then even the, and these, these uh, antiphons, you know, we, we talked about how, or I mentioned how this is an apocalyptic passage. We talk about apocalyptic, and very often apocalypse is just equated with destruction and, and doom. And so there's this kind of despairing, uh, you know, even Christians, when they, when they read, you know, and there's a lot of really, you know, hard, you know, just lurid pop apocalypticism out there, you know, the Hal Lindsey and Tim LaHaye and folk like that. Um, and so people, people tend to look at this with a kind of despair, even if they're Christian. And so I, this really hit me, a, a, a student uh, from early on my time here, he's now a pastor in upstate New York, and 
he posted something on his Facebook page, and I can't, it was something, this was a few weeks ago, it was political, but it was not partisan. But of course, people look at, you know, they see politics, they become partisan. And so this one woman posted something about if, if one of the two candidates in the recent presidential election wins, and I'm not going to say which one she was saying, but if so-and-so wins, then the events of revelation speed up or something like that. And right. I thought, well, okay, that's problematic in so many ways. But what I responded was, you know, this is, this is what we call Christian hope. If, if anything, that, that should be a reason right. to vote for that candidate. Yes. We want yes. this to happen. Of course, it's not going to speed it up. You know, that's, the, that's what you have right. to say quickly. But, the, but, but Advent, beginning with this kind of, you know, the, the final and glorious coming of Christ, which is the final, the parousia, of the coming, the, the final disclosure of God in Christ, when God will be all in all. This is our hope. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things we wrestle with, and, and, and Kirk, you were, you were alluding to this, is, is it what we have, you know, I don't know if it's so much absent as it, it's perverted in our culture. It, we, we have substituted false hopes for the true hope in Christ. And, and they even have their own kinds of seasons. Um, and, and two that quickly came to mind, you know, politics, we collapse hope into politics. Right. So that we, co we come to this kind of despair or elation, depending on who won an election, when, you know, we're, as Christians, we're always, in, as Auden says, our duty to the city is loyal opposition, whoever rules. Um, and, and also consumerism. And it, let me just, I, I noticed you, since you shared, uh, I, uh, there's a book by Scott Walkes, that's W-A-A-L-K-E-S. He teaches at, um, at uh, Malone University in Ohio. And he is, he's a, a political scientist. It's called The Fullness of Time in a Flat World. And so it's, it's basically a critique of globalism through a liturgical lens. He's not liturgically trained. So there is some, um, uh, th th there's some, um, you know, if you're theologically trained, you can, you'll pick, you, you know, there are places where you can disagree with them. But he does say, he says, liturgical rhythms are implicated here when we realize that the rhythms of consumption have displaced the liturgical rhythms of the Christian year, most notably Christmas and Easter. As Lee Eric Schmidt puts it, quote, the marketplace serves as an obvious arena of holiday preparation, observance, and enthrallment, a central location for the commemoration of Christianity's most important holy days, as well as for the enactment of America's most prominent civic holidays, end quote. And all are commemorated through shopping. North American Christians even live by a different liturgical calendar that is mimicked and displaced to the authentic one by subtly turning their Christian festivities into buying seasons, fitting the rhythms of American retailers. Halloween is retail advent, a season of transition that prepares us for Thanksgiving and Christmas, the center of the retail year. Valentine's Day is retail epiphany, a brief, brief burst of activity before retail Easter, which is less important than retail Christmas. Mother's Day and Memorial Day form a retail ascension, feasting before the retail Pentecost called the 4th of July, which promotes a small burst of spending spirit. When we enter an ordinary time of we then enter an ordinary time of summer relaxation, back to school shopping, Labor Day, and the transition to the fall looking toward Halloween. 
The Puritans helped clear the way for this calendar of capitalism by cutting down the old Catholic fasts and feasts and promoting a flatter sense of time. Quote, the sooner such festivals and holy days were brought under control and reduced in number, the better for commerce, civic prosperity, and genuine piety. And uh, that's a, a book by Robinson, Work, Leisure, and the Environment. Yet we ended up with a cycle of seasons after all, one that promoted steadier consumption than the seasons of fits and starts, highs and lows, fasts and feasts, and one that is speeding up and pushing Christmas ever earlier. Think about you know, when do you start seeing Christmas decorations in the stores? But how might we learn to live differently and slow down? And that, you know, that's, that's Advent. You know, that, that's, you know, Advent needs to be a kind of, Advent is an act of resistance on the part of Christians. Um, but if I, if I could share a story, um, I used to go to a, a, a coffee shop not far from campus. Um, uh, Christopher is the, the old caribou on Minnesota. Um, and for a time, the two people who, who worked it, one, um, they were both very theologically literate. Uh, one, his, his, his dad, I think, was a Lutheran pastor. His mom was a Presbyterian minister. And anyway, it was, it was a more liturgically or more theologically sophisticated coffee shop than, than you might just imagine. <laughs> and so I was there, and, um, and so the manager came in and talked about what wonderful Christmas things they said. I can't wait to, for everyone to see the Christmas things. I said, well, it is that time. It's almost Labor Day. And, <laughs> and you know, and so we started talking about that. And, and, the, and we were talking about this kind of co-opting of the, the Christian year by, by consumerism. Mm. And so we were talking about what is it that in, within the liturgy that resists it? And it's, it's, penitence and and this kind of preparation because we talked about you know we will never see you know doors open early for the big ash wednesday blowout you know that's mm. it penitence is it, it cannot be you know it cannot be commodified mm. and in that way it, it resists and so i think you know we were talking off camera about how at one time advent had a more penitential quality to it and then after Vatican II with the liturgical reforms there, it became much more one of anticipation and hope, which I think is right. But, you know, I think one of the, the tasks we have during Advent is, is to speak of a, of a true and proper hope over against these false hopes of consumerism, which simply is, is a deferral. You know, it's like William Kavanaugh says, consumerism doesn't want you to buy, it just wants you to shop. You know, it, it wants a perpetual dissatisfaction, and then and then to collapse hope into politics, uh, which you know, it has its own it has its own rhythm. In fact, I think one of the cultural uh, anxieties right now is is the rhythms have sort of gotten stuck. You know, we're not progressing the way we normally do after an election. Right. Um, just we'll leave that you know for for what it is. But you know, I think that's that's one of the things we need to think about is is Advent is a kind of act of resistance. And this is, you know, so for instance, the, the, the Old Testament passage, you know, the Old Testament reading right off the bat on Sunday, oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down and touch the mountains so they might smoke, you know, that. But also, as we get into these, these wonderful titles for Christ and the antiphons, let this, you know, reflect our, our or, uh, focus our reflection, you know, 
the, the wisdom of God in the midst of a, of a, of a broken and very you know, unwise world. Uh, I, I think there's so much potential there. So I, I'll be quiet. And yeah. As you were speaking, I, so wise, I, I think kind of what you're saying is this, is that Advent is vital in placing these apocalyptic readings in their proper yeah. devotional contexts. Right, I think because so. Because otherwise it, it allows your fear and your imagination to kind of run wild and yeah. just kind of spin theories. Yeah. And, and yeah. That's, that's not why they're there. Right. Um, but then when we're reading them together as the church at Advent, instead we're stirred yeah. up in hope and anticipation. You know, yeah, and, and, and I don't want to make... preparation. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I don't, don't want to make this sound like I'm, I'm giving with one hand and taking back with the other. But especially in, in our time and in our culture, I think we really need to, to read the first, you know, the coming of Christ in humility in light of his coming in glory, because we don't want to miss the judgment of the incarnation. You know, if, if, if the incarnation is anything, it's God's, you know, exclamation point declaration. You couldn't do it. <laughs> you know, I had to do this. And, and, and so there is this, there's a quality, there's a strongly judgmental quality within or, or in the first coming of Christ. And we don't want to miss the fact that it is judgment as well as grace. I mean, it's certainly grace. Don't want to, to lose that. But, the, but, but Christ's coming is, is judgment as well, mm -hmm. always. Mm -hmm. He comes to judge the world, we, the, the earth we hear in the Psalms. Yeah. Always. We had uh, we had uh, spoken about this off air, but this is worthwhile bringing up in, in light of what you just said. Um, prior to uh, the new reframing of Advent, what are what are what? I don't even know what. What did you say the four Advent themes often are nowadays? Oh yeah, we were talking that we we had to but peace, peace, joy, peace, joy, hope. love, and hope. Peace, yeah. joy, yeah. love, and hope. And it's not in that order. I, I don't know. Yeah, I right, can't remember. Right. Well, but prior to prayer book revision on the English side of things and then um, Vatican II on the Catholic side of things, the, uh, the traditional themes of Advent were death, judgment, heaven, and hell. And I think mm -hmm. that's kind of part of what you're maybe gently yeah. suggesting we, how we reframe our, our reading and our prayers during this season. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, not not. I think it's proper to keep the 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 kind of hope and anticipation because it is it is our hope. Ad, you know, the coming of the coming of God is 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 hopeful uh, always, and, and yet I think there. I, I I wouldn't want to completely lose the the more penitential. The you know there, there has at least to be a penitential component to it. So I would suggest as a way of bringing these, these O antiphons, which are a fun kind of nugget that the three of us have discovered um, in our rummaging around the, the, the metaphorical closet of the church, um, a, a, way, a helpful way to bring them into your kitchen, so to speak, is to um, learn a verse and sing it with your family. Um, and if you divide, you know, 24 by 7, you get roughly three, right? So every three days in Advent, add a verse. And by the end of Advent, you will have memorized, well, it, I'm set to, it's set to John Mason Neal's lovely translation. Um, you will have memorized all of the O antiphons and you will be devotionally praying and singing to God back these prophetic names um, that are revealed to us in Isaiah. Um, I don't say this as, as boasting. I say this just as proof that it's, that it works. 
Uh, I started this several years ago with my family and um, my, my children all know, they know all the verses. Um, mm. And uh, so it's easily done. And, um, and it's a way kind of, of, of removing it from the, the library and bringing it into your kitchen table. And I would, I would recommend it. Yeah, Kirk, you mentioned how uh, we had to run or drown to find this stuff, that we, yeah. had, to, we had to discover it. And, and so like, what we're trying to do very actively is, is make it so others don't have to run or drown to find it, to say, like, it, as we include these devotional practices, like, these, these will be written on our hearts. Um, I, I love the Chronicles of Narnia. And in mm. The Lion, the Witch, the Wardrobe, uh, the cursed land of Narnia is a place where it is always winter and yep. never Christmas. And never Christmas, yeah. But I have to say, um, 25 days of Christmas kind of almost seems like punishment, where it's always <laughs> Christmas and like, if it's always Christmas, then it's never Christmas, right? Right. Like, like we have a spectrum here. And on the one side, it's always winter, never Christmas. On the other side, it's always Christmas and like, therefore never Christmas. So we, we want to have a season of anticipation. And so practically, um, as, as we raise our children as we, as I pastor a church of, of, of people um, in anticipating, in hopeful expectation of the season. Uh, I don't want to be the Grinch who takes away, um, you know, even though sometimes I am kind of the Grinch that like <laughs> a Jordan found an old iPod touch that uh, has a great Christmas playlist um, of, of great Christmas music. And she's been listening to that Christmas music on her own for a few weeks now because she knows that I really don't approve of it. Um, and uh, so it's not that we do have Christmas music playing in our, in our home during Advent, um, but mostly as anticipation of what is to come. We will probably decorate our house, uh, green it up um, this weekend, if not today, um, but again, that is to build anticipation for the 12 days of Christmas. To, to um, Kirk, we talked about how um, feasting and fasting and how the fast prepares for the feast and, and mm -hmm. how delightful the feast is when you have preparation for it. And, and that's, I hope, what, what um, practically this season can be for our children and for, for those people that um, we are walking with in this season is that um, as we push back against the culture that is self-indulgent, that is consumeristic that is now 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 more um that that uh you know a costco that has christmas um decorations up in september um that we don't that we aren't just cranky people but that <laughs> we are people that are that are um building um a healthy love of of a season of penitence of of self-reflection yeah. and expectation I'm going to spend more time than I usually do um, linking stuff in the show notes, one. Number two, uh, retweeting stuff. And number three, uh, on the Facebook discussion group. Because the part of the problem is we say, we'll celebrate Advent. And people are like, well, where's the Advent music? Mm. <laughs> and that's, Christopher, yeah. where I say, like, you and I have been rummaging around in the, in the dusty yeah. old closet. Um, it exists. It's out there. And some of it's uh, inaccessible. Like, so Bach ad Bach's Advent cantatas are marvelous. Now, we, most of us don't know German. 
right? So nun kommt der Heiden Highland. Like, we, that's not going to like stir most of our hearts, but... Beautiful. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes, no, no, it is beautiful. Well, if we know, Father, what, if we know German, then I mean, it's... <laughs> but, um, now, come so, savior of the nation. But yes. That's, that's, yeah, exactly. Yes. Okay. I, right. I, I mean, that, that's one of my favorites. I, that, that's just, that is such a beautiful one. So, excuse me, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. Absolutely. Yeah. And Bach has several settings of it too. BWV yeah. 61 and 62. Um, so I'll, I, I'm going to maybe obnoxiously kind of link and post some stuff. So, so, so if people are properly asking like, well, what are we listening to? Um, and uh, it may, it, like a Bach cantata may be a hard ask for a lot of you who maybe aren't classical <laughs> music fans, but like, listen, um, so was, you know, reading a Pauline epistle the first time you did. And yet you would say now, yeah, I'm glad that I read Galatians and that I, I, I recognize it and I know it and I have it in my heart. Um, so, and there are actually Advent carols. Um, it's just, unfortunately, a lot of Christian traditions have just tossed them, pitched them aside. Um, Dr. Thompson, uh, for me, lo, he comes with clouds descending. I will bellow like a crazy person on Sunday. Yeah. Like it's... Yeah. It's great, and that's Charles Wesley, yeah, and, that is. Yeah. and um, so that, that's wonderful. Um, we have gone so, so, so long. Um, any final thoughts, gentlemen, before we end in prayer? I, I do, yeah. So yes. you mentioned um, how, um, if you arrange the O antiphons, um, they, they read backwards are an acrostic in Latin. Yes. Um, in English, <laughs> um, they actually spell out backwards, Paul is dead. <laughs> that's a Beatles. I'm joke. kidding. That's a Beatles joke. Um, <laughs> Abby Rowe. Sorry, I don't. I don't know what our audience is. Anyway, uh, on that note, um, gentlemen, shall we pray? Yes. I. I, I I'm sorry. I should have said that earlier. Not. That's really funny. That is so funny. Okay. The Lord be with you, and with your spirit. With you. Let us pray. Almighty God. Give us grace to cast away the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Now in the time of this mortal life in which your son, Jesus Christ, came to visit us in great humility, that in the last day, when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge both the living and the dead, we may rise to the life immortal. Through him who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. O God, the source of all holy desires, all good counsels, and all just works, give to your servants that peace which the world cannot give, that our hearts may be set to obey your commandments, and that we, being defended from the fear of our enemies, may pass our time in rest and quietness through the merits of Jesus Christ our Savior. Amen. Amen. Lighten our darkness, we beseech you, O Lord, and by your great mercy, defend us from all perils and dangers of this night. For the love of your only Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. Amen. Dr. Thompson, thank you for coming on. Christopher, thank, next thank week. Thank you for having next me. Next week. Yeah.